the Berkeley or KFCF in Fresno, and it is time now for Cover to Cover with your host, Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today I think I'll stick with Sylvia Plath again. I finally hauled myself out to the film. Uh, I don't know what it is lately, but uh, the fall of Western civilization doesn't seem to be holding my attention. Uh, comes and goes. I don't seem to be able to do very much about it, so I thought I would go back to the things that I really care about. Um, today is November the 11th, 2003. And um, actually, after I saw the film, I went home and got out all my notes dating back to the 19... 19- 70s, would you believe? Yes, all the way back, 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 back to the time when I was a, a graduate student in women's studies, and I remember, I remember how messianic it all was um, when Sylvia Plath committed suicide. Now, that was in February of 1963. She, of course, became a myth. Um, for the feminists, I suppose, um, well, she wasn't just symbolic. She was an icon, kind of their Christ. Um, I doubt if she saw herself that way. Uh, actually, since the death of Sylvia Plath, Hughes kept his mouth shut. Uh, and he didn't uh, actually... Let it all hang out until he published birthday letters 35 years after the death of um, his first wife, Sylvia. And uh, uh, I think the, the poem, well, it isn't so much. The poetry was neglected in this recent film. And I thought, let me start. Let me start today with a little bit of the great poem, Lady Lazarus, just to acquaint uh, some folks. I... I have to remind myself over and over again how many people there are on the planet who neither know nor care that Sylvia Plath uh, was uh, uh, a hero, hero of the women's movement in uh, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and still today. Uh, here it is, Lady Lazarus. I've done it again, one year in every ten, I manage it a sort of walking miracle. My skin bright as a Nazi lampshade. My right foot a paperweight, 
my face a featureless fine jewel linen. Peel off the napkin, O oh my enemy, do I terrify? The nose, the eye pits, the full set of teeth, the sour breath will vanish in a day. Soon, soon the flesh, the grave cave eight, will be at home on me. Am I a smiling woman? I am only thirty, and like the cat, I have nine times to die. This is number three. What a trash to annihilate each decade. What a million filaments the peanut-crunching crowd shoves in to see them unwrap me hand and foot the big striptease. Gentlemen, ladies, these are my hands, my knees. I may be skin and bone, nevertheless I am the same identical woman. The first time it happened I was ten. It was an accident. The second time I meant to last it out and not come back at all. I rocked shut as a seashell. They had to call and call and pick the worms off me like sticky pearls. Dying is an art like everything else. I do it exceptionally well. I do it so it feels like hell. I do it so it feels real. I guess you could say I've a call. It's easy enough to do it in a cell. It's easy enough to do it and stay put. It's the theatrical comeback in broad day to the same place, the same face, the same brute, amused shout. A miracle that knocks me out. There is a charge for the eyeing of my scars. There is a charge for the hearing of my heart. It really goes. And there is a charge, a very large charge, for a word or a touch or a bit of blood or a piece of my hair or my clothes. So, hair doctor, so, hair enemy, I am your opus. I am your valuable, the pure gold baby that melts to a shriek, I turn and burn. Do not think I underestimate your great concern, Ash. Ash, you poke and stir. Flesh, bone, there is nothing there. A cake of soap, a wedding ring, a gold filling. Hair God, hair Lucifer, beware, beware. Out of the ash I rise with my red hair, and I eat men like air. After the film was over the other day, I noticed a few women leaving the theater with some tears in their eyes, and I thought, uh, as I remember thinking back in the 70s, um, why on earth... Uh, did they feel sorry for this megalomasochist? Uh, 
that symbiosis that she had with uh, uh, Ted Hughes certainly gave her a place in history. <laughs> I don't know. It's so hard to pass judgment. Let us not pass judgment. Let us just look at the poet. Um, people very often think of the poet as, you know, someone on a head trip, an intellectual. I see it the other way around. I see them as primal force. Um, of course, they do um, prophesy. They are priests in their way. But basically... They show us their passion, and uh, this is how they teach us. Uh, Sylvia wrote the line, Must you kill what you can? I took that as her, um, well, her challenge to the men. Uh, I've always thought that uh, she reacted to the masculine molecules, oh, a little bit the way... Virginia Woolf did, but she got in there. She really mixed in there. Uh, she was interested in uh, power and domination. Uh, I think that uh, both Sylvia and Ted Hughes were self-centered and uh, self-absorbed to the point uh, of no return. This, of course, is the source of the pain. There's a new book I want to tell you about. I hope to get the author on very soon. It's by Diane Wood Middlebrook. Uh, she wrote the wonderful book on Anne Sexton, that biography. The new book is Her Husband, Hughes and Plath, The Story of a Marriage. And um, that one uh, is about the symbiosis, the ways in which they used one another, each to become uh, himself or herself. And I think... Uh, that's what we need to know, what the alchemy of that relationship was. Um, most of the time, I think, in the past, we used to um, ask ourselves, what would have happened had they never met? You know, could Sylvia have been uh, as great a poet? Would she have just become a professor? You know, the sort of thing. Um, I think it might help those of you who are just becoming acquainted with this poet to get yourself to the film Sylvia it is uh, a very respectful attempt to portray her life and it does um, basically focus just on the the relationship the sensuality uh, the marriage to Ted Hughes he of course became poet laureate of England uh, in later years uh he refused all the interviews on subject of his wife until just before his death. He published uh, a book called Birthday Letters, 35 years after she died. Obviously, he has been, he had been obsessed with the subject all of his life. These poems reveal all of his feelings about Sylvia. They borrow generously from her own work, uh, a lot of, complaints came out. I remember the critics saying that um, uh, he was cannibalizing her. He was taking her uh, work, quoting it most generously. I, of course, always agree with T.S. Eliot, who said that poor poets borrow, great poets steal. Why not? She left it to him. She left no will. 
Let me give you just a few lines. Uh, this is a long poem about, um, oh, the marriage. Yes, I have much more to say about marriage. This poem is called A Pink Wool Knitted Dress by Ted Hughes. It's in Birthday Letters, published just a few weeks before Ted Hughes died. He writes, you were transfigured, so slender and new and naked. A nodding spray of wet lilac. You shook. You sobbed with joy. You were ocean depth brimming with God. You said you saw the heavens open and show riches ready to drop upon us. Levitated beside you. I stood subjected to a strange, tense, the spellbound future. In that echo-gaunt weekday chancel I see you wrestling to contain your flames in your pink wool-knitted dress and in your eye-pupils, great-cut jewels, jostling their tear flames, truly like big jewels shaken in a dice cup and held up to me. Can be no question but what Sylvia was insane about uh, Ted Hughes, that she loved him very much, remembered exactly the same age getting married in New York City um, the same year. I dressed in black from the skin out, no pink wool dress. We were into irony, we beatniks. Sylvia was into discipline, discipline. Ah. Poor lady. I don't know. I think it is presumptuous to feel sorry for Sylvia. It's just that uh, anyone who crashes out at 30 always leaves these questions behind I remember when I read the biographies, I became obsessed with Ted Hughes' mother, the fact that she died uh, after learning that Ted's second wife, Asia, had uh, killed herself. She did this taking their little child, a two-year-old girl, with her. She destroyed herself next to a trunk of Sylvia's unpublished work. Um... Ted Hughes, to give him credit, did try to keep the news from his mother, the news of the death of this second daughter-in-law and the little grandchild. But Ted's father rushed to tell his wife the news, and she then promptly died. Uh, <laughs> it's very hard to figure out what, what was really going on, uh, in the biographies, there are all these hints and suggestions uh, that Ted and his mother practiced the old religion, worshipped the Chthonic gods, earth spirits, you know the sort of thing. Something that's still very popular up in Yorkshire, where Ted grew up back in the 19th century. Thomas Hardy uh, wrote all of his stories, um, so many books about the uh, the pagans. Emily Bronte, too. Those writers hung out with the heathens in the heathen region, yes. Heathen simply means one who lives on the heath, that is, a peasant or a farmer. 
We all remember Heathcliff, the male uh, character in Wuthering Heights. He was not a romantic person at all, according to Emily Bronte. She said he was a terrible, wolfish man. Such beings, both real and imagined, are uh, notoriously unreasonable, cannot be controlled. Celtic lore abounds on the subject. Um, I always think of Ted Hughes when I read Emily Bronte's descriptions of Heathcliff. Uh, I also think of Charlotte Bronte. She wrote a very thoughtful analysis in one of her forewords to Wuthering Heights after Emily's death. She wrote that she, Charlotte, did not know whether or not it was right to create such characters as uh, Heathcliff, but that um, the poet, she said, uh, is tired of shifting sea sand, she said, yes, and begins hewing uh, statues in stone, that the poet is possessed, you see, by uh, his own poetry, by his own uh, creation. Ted Hughes himself wrote that he and Sylvia together uh, were fated. He said, yes, poetry told us what to do. I get the impression that they used these primal powers uh, to seduce each other, of course, and then to do battle, to do battle for the soul. It seems that Ted's earth spirit was stronger, that is, he lived, he survived physically. She died, but there are those who say that Sylvia triumphed with her spirit, spirit of the air, with her last book, the collection of poems she titled Ariel. Ariel is the name of that uh, spirit. In Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, you know the one that Prospero uh, confines, he, he puts Ariel in a tree, she's the captive in this tree, but then she is liberated, and Prospero says he will give up his rough magic. Rough magic is the title of a biography of Sylvia Plath written by Paul Alexander, which I was reading last night. A very interesting spin. Uh, it details a lot of uh, the battles in this war between man and woman, between love and power. Of course, that's always part of it. Uh, with these two, their elemental passions were snarled up in this uh, historical trap we call the 1950s. Um, I think that the handicap has got to go to Sylvia if you're interested in the winning and losing of things, as Sylvia used to write, I simply cannot see where there is to get to. She was, of course, far more repressed uh, by her social role as wife, mother, as woman, especially as American woman. There's a hilarious moment in the film when Michael Gambon uh, <laughs> plays, oh, he plays uh, Sylvia's London neighbor in the house where she spent her last freezing winter alone with her two kids and uh, he has uh, this funny bit, it's a lovely bit part for him uh, you remember Michael Gambone, he was TV's singing detective he's the last man to see Sylvia alive in the film and she says to him uh, at their first meeting 
words to the effect that, of course, he must think she's just some kind of intrusive American bitch. And he says, oh, no, dear, I thought you were Canadian. At that point in the film, the stress, the pain is so acute that it was a relief to have a little joke. Uh, there's very little levity in the movie. Um, we all know that uh, if you're married to an Englishman, you must have an acute sense of humor, at least of irony. God knows um, Diana Spencer learned that if you mean to survive, you have to see the absurdities. I remember watching my older sister um, married to a Brit, someone old enough to be her father, Trevor Howard type. She died in Malaga many years ago. I believe she was his third wife. And he was true to form, you know, impervious to any of her feelings. Uh, he was completely self-centered and self-absorbed. But then, of course, so was she. Um, I think that this film, Sil Sylvia, will be useful for the, the very young because it's quite reverential. It doesn't give you enough narrative, enough detail. Uh, for that, you have to read the biographies. Uh, and it certainly doesn't tell you about the poetry, but it's intriguing enough that I think it will lead a lot of people to go back and read the poems and read the biographies. Uh, at the beginning of the film, uh, there's a few bits of poetry when you see Ted and Sylvia coming together at Cambridge. Uh, each one reads a poem, and uh, Ted, of course, is very free. Um, and Sylvia is extremely uptight. We see a gathering in the poet's rooms. Ted speaks Romeo's lines, the lines uh, that Romeo says when he finds Juliet supposedly dead in Capulet's tomb. Sylvia responds with the lines that uh, lead to Juliet's final death, her Suicide with Romeo's knife in her heart. I think that worked just fine. Uh, I do think it was a mistake to cast Blythe Danner as uh, Sylvia's mother, Aurelia Plath. Of course, Blythe Danner is the, the real-life mother of Gwyneth Paltrow, who played Sylvia. Uh, I think this may be a... Um, Oscar-winning role for Gwyneth Paltrow. I have been somewhat cavalier in my treatment of her in the past, but I think this is this is good work. This is as good as it gets. Um, but Blythe Danner was simply too blithe for Aurelia. Aurelia Plath was pretty grim. She had gastrointestinal ulcers and just just um, a very very grim lady. There are only a few scenes dealing with the life there in Boston. Uh, they focus mostly on Ted Hughes' discomfort, um, apparently. Well, someone pretends to have read his work and uh, that sort of thing. Um, obviously, Aurelia, Sylvia's mother, doesn't trust him with good reason. Ted Hughes was used to idolatry and he got a lot of it. Um, his sister, Olwen, seems to have been um, one of his acolytes. She took over the care of his children when Sylvia died. Um, 
She did not have children of her own, and she had a great deal to do with publishing the manuscripts and censoring them and uh, editing them. Over the years, Sylvia left no will. Uh, the second wife, Asia, took over the two children, Nicholas and uh, Frida, about 1966. This, of course, made life very difficult for Plath's mother. Uh, the feminists, I think, chose Sylvia Plath as an icon back in the 60s because she embodied she embodied woman's power and what happens when that power is crushed, just eluded. There's a, a uh, quote here. Um, yes, it's from uh, uh, Elizabeth Bishop. It's about the ways in which we die when our power is taken away from us. Uh, Sylvia's passions were pretty what is the word for that? Uh, pretty much obvious, we all know. Uh, there's one scene in the film. She's trying to get her husband back. He's uh, left her for another woman. And um, they have a, there's a sex scene on the sofa. And then you see Sylvia alone, naked, with her knees tucked under her, completely, completely naked, completely vulnerable. She's played her last card and lost the loss of... Love can be fatal for some, some of us, uh, even for some men. I think what he did was say that, oh yes, the, the new woman was pregnant. That was, uh, his final rejection. It was enough to kill her. There is a scene in the film that bothered me. She attempts a love affair with, um, A. Alvarez, another fellow that you can read about in the biographies. And, um, he's pretty much horrified. Uh, they put so much makeup on her for that scene, uh, false eyelashes, that sort of thing, and uh, it, it was enough to make you wince. Of course, she should have gone on anyway she could, but uh, she did seem to be courting disaster. Uh, Sylvia did try to get help. There are all these letters she wrote asking that her uh, brother Warren's wife, Margaret, come stay with her. She begged her mother for help, and she asked for an aunt. Let's see, that's Dorothy, her mother's sister, to come and stay. She was nothing if not demanding. Uh, as Ted's sister, Olwen, writes, Sylvia was pretty straight poison. That's a quote, pretty straight poison. <laughs> I don't know. Feminist ideology uh, was ripe. For this woman, I think, of course, that it's uh, not realistic to attach that much symbolism to one life, but uh, uh, women's sexual desires are still a subject that is hard indeed. Uh, every time I try to tackle it, I get into terrible trouble. As um, Sylvia herself writes, the message of the yew tree is blackness blackness and silence for those who have a will to power if they lose then of course they die I remember the first paper I wrote on Sylvia I was at the stage where I blamed the institution of marriage I decided that marriage was what was wrong um, 
I quoted William Blake, who wrote uh, a little piece. He called it an ancient proverb. Remove away that blackening church. Remove away that marriage hearse. Remove away that place of blood. And you'll quite remove the ancient curse. Indeed, it is an ancient curse. Sylvia is buried in Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. I will be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Check out the new film, Sylvia, all about the life of Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, one of the great love affairs of the 20th century. Till then, go easy. This has been Jennifer Stone. If you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. Out of What if we designed our homes, our communities, our cities like the forest? An exciting course in permaculture design will be offered in Alameda at the Alameda Point Collaborative. Selected weekends starting November 15th. Please check out the web at www.permacultureinstitute.com or phone Permaculture Institute of Northern California at area code 415 663 9090. 